we could say wine was the canary in the coal mine for climate change. I don't think we need canaries anymore. We are seeing signs of it anywhere you live on earth in your daily life. But, you know, coming up on 20 years ago now, it was less clear. So wine was a, a important starting point. Um, so that was why I picked it. It was something that I had a strong personal attachment to and that I think was a way to help make some of these connections that here's climate change that you can taste. Here's something that's familiar and beloved that is threatened and is being now changed by climate change. My name is Gabriel Gitterdens, and I'm a senior at Hunter College High School from Manhattan. My name is Adam Rudd. I'm also a senior at Hunter College High School, and I'm also from Manhattan. My name is Kevin Zhao, and I'm a senior at Hunter College High School, but I'm from Queens. So welcome back to another episode of our podcast. Uh, High school students may talk about the climate briefly in their science classes, but many go their whole high school careers without significantly thinking about or discussing one of the most pressing issues of today, that is climate change. Our aim in producing this podcast is to promote conversation about climate change among family and friends, specifically between young people who are the future of climate action. So today on this episode, we welcome Professor Kim Nicholas. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. I'm Kim Nicholas. I'm an associate professor of sustainability science at Lund University in Sweden. Cool. So, yeah, we're we're really excited to have you. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about what what you're working on today, right now, like in, in these past couple months? Sure. Well, my big project in 2020 has been writing a book, um, which I have here in a binder format and is on its way to um, be printed and will actually be ready for um, people to read in March. So it's coming out soon. Um, It's been a long road. I started in 2017 with the writing and the last year I've been working on it um, pretty much full time. So are you are you are you working with editors right now? kind of against their will <laughs> my editor oh, okay. said you should be done with this by now I'm like no I have to see it one more time and make sure all the changes are right and everything but gotcha. we've gone back and forth many times and the focus is on harnessing facts feelings and action for climate for climate uh, stabilization um like like what's your writing process like Let's see. I started in 2017 um, with the inspiration to start working on a book. And at that point, it was very loose and unstructured. I didn't start with an outline, which I think was quite apparent <laughs> later. But uh, I had a lot of stories to tell and had a lot of experiences that I thought were valuable and that could maybe be helpful for people who are um concerned or even alarmed about the climate crisis, which is actually the majority of Americans. So most people know that the climate is warming. It's because of us. Scientists are sure. We know that it's bad. And then people can get stuck on how bad and how overwhelming the problem is. And it's really important to get to this fifth point of we can fix it because there's so much we can do. We have the solutions we need. We know what needs to be done. And um, there's such a huge need for everybody to pitch in and contribute their skills and talents to help make this heroic change happen in time. Your book seemed to have a large focus on the cultural and societal shifts that need to take place in terms of climate change. And the description says, saving ourselves from the climate apocalypse will require radical shifts within each of us to affect real change in our society and culture. Could you elaborate on the types of change you were talking about here specifically, whether they are changes in the actions people take or the mindsets people have towards climate change? Sure. 
So my diagnosis is that one of the fundamental problems we have today is this mindset of exploitation. And that plays itself out in some people thinking that they are more worthy than other people and in people in general thinking that they have the right to dominate nature. And I think those two um, principles are behind many of the crises that we have today, the climate crises among others. So what I'm proposing is taking a step back and focusing on three principles that get us away from this exploitation mindset and towards a mindset of regeneration. So that means um, centering people and nature, making that the focus of everything that we do, recognizing both are critical and, and need to thrive to support each other and have a good life for everyone on earth within the physical and biological chemical limits of the planet that we share. Second is um, reducing harm and recognizing the source of harm and getting to the root cause of problems and not just trying to clean things up after the fact. Uh, and third is increasing resilience. So strengthening our ability to cope with changes and to support each other in communities and work towards those, those goals. So that, that's sort of trying to, I guess, it, I guess I'd call it changing people's minds. Um, seems like the, the meat of the problem for me, like, like how do you, how do you tell someone that what they're doing is, is, isn't helpful or is wrong or, or takes a, uh, like a dominating, uh, mindset. Well, I guess my goal and, and my theory of change is to reach the people who, um, are already thinking along these lines, or at least are open to some of these ideas. And I think that's actually quite a lot of people. And I'm really encouraged by research that shows that to actually have a, a social tipping point, you only need 25% of the population. So um, it's not actually an election or it's not a consensus that the way that social conventions work, the sort of norms that people agree upon in the expectations we have for each other and for our societies tend to be at a, repeatedly shown that, at the, that there's a tipping point around 25%. So that gives me a lot of hope and energy because um, when you look at, there, there's just definitely <laughs> that many people out there, I think. So kind of reaching those people, helping them connect the dots. Um, I don't think it's so much about, you know, huge changes in mindset necessarily, but in tapping into people's existing values actually that are mm. not being realized by the system of exploitation are being actively hindered or blocked or um, prevented from being realized by the system of exploitation we have now. And that's kind of a starting point. Um, that way of looking at things I, that I take through everything from personal lifestyle choices to global food and energy and political systems. And, you know, I think those things are very deeply interconnected. So we actually need to talk about both and understand how they're connected to each other. That yeah, that that's that's something that I found so so interesting about your work was that that you know a lot of the time climate change is presented as a problem that's gonna have really like dire consequences and and which which is true but but people don't focus on maybe the the consequences that'll that'll affect like just our wants and our 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 desires and our values so so that was like in your work about um about wine is like a huge thing like. What happens if our wine is worse? Uh, I mean, we don't know, but but general people who are over twenty one would know. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. 
Right. So I, I come from a town called Sonoma, which is an hour north of San Francisco, and it's a wine growing region. It's um, next door to Napa, which is where I went to high school, which is maybe even better known. But, you know, Sonomans will proudly tell you that we're the real wine country. That's the <laughs> slogan. But anyway, both of those are obviously wonderful places to grow and enjoy wine and have a long history of doing that. And it's part of the landscape and culture. And so for me, it was um, that that's what I did my PhD on actually when I was at Stanford and doing some of the lab work at UC Davis, trying to make these connections between this system that's important to people, both culturally, economically, it's about half of the employment and ultimately the, or not, not entirely the employment, but a lot of the employment and about half the economy ultimately comes down to wine and tourism mm -hmm. and the, the production and distribution of wine and all the industry that's there. So it's a really big part of life there. And I mean, when I was doing my PhD, which I started in 2003, we could say wine was the canary in the coal mine for climate change. I don't think we need canaries anymore because we have all kinds of birds. It's not just canaries anymore that are, are feeling climate change. I mean, we are seeing signs of it anywhere you live on earth in your daily life, you can observe signs of a changed climate. Uh, but, you know, coming up on 20 years ago now, it was less clear. So wine was a, a important starting point. Um, so that was why I picked it. It was something that I had a strong personal attachment to and that I think was a way to connect with people uh, to kind of hopefully help make some of these connections that here's climate change that you can taste. Here's something that's familiar and beloved that is threatened and is being now changed by climate change. So in terms of the actual chemistry, what's happening in wine that's causing the changes in flavor or composition? Sure. So wine is kind of ripening is kind of this natural ballet. And what's happening is you get heat that is causing the process of ripening, which is accumulating sugar. And that sugar, the plant is converting acids into sugar through the process of respiration. And ultimately you want um, to pick grapes when they have a good balance of acid and sugar. The sugar is going to ferment into alcohol. Um, so you want there to be a level that's appropriate for the style of wine that you're making. Um, one problem that's happening now with uh, warmer and longer growing seasons and earlier ripening is that wines are tending to, or grapes are tending to accumulate more sugar and therefore tending to produce higher alcohol wines. So that can throw off the balance of a wine that can, um, you know, interfere with the style that, that growers are going for and overpower if you have too much alcohol, maybe you don't get as much appreciation for the aromas and flavor compounds and um, the texture from the tannins and all the other things that people really appreciate about wine. I mean, I think most, yeah, people who love wine are not just drinking a, a red fluid that's, you know, 13.5% alcohol and, <laughs> and like there's much more to it that people enjoy. So the, the other big issue is those aroma and flavor compounds. Um, there's over a thousand of them at least. Um, there's more still being discovered, but we do know that they tend to accumulate in the last month of ripening. So that's a really critical period for getting the, the balance um, and the grapes that, that can have the potential to be made into great wine. And we know that the potential to develop those compounds is actually lower in um, climates that are too hot and the pace of ripening that can be too fast also is detrimental. So, when I was doing my PhD, I interviewed a lot of growers in Napa and Sonoma, and you know they consistently told me some of the 
best winemakers in the world told me, great wine is grown and not made. My job hmm. is basically not to screw it up. You know, I, I have this privilege to work at this wonderful estate and you get these beautiful grapes, which are carefully taken care of in the vineyard in collaboration with my colleagues that, who are out there doing the farming. But, you know, really, um, of course, there's a lot of skill in being a, a winemaker, but even the most skilled winemaker in the world can't turn and make a silk purse out of a sow's ear if they have grapes yeah. that are from um, a region that just doesn't support the kind of um, characteristics that people love and value in wine then there's no way to artificially overcome that or create that so are you are you yourself a, a big wine savant i do love wine i think uh, living in sweden has been um not good for my wine consumption, although maybe there's benefits, health benefits to that probably, but it's certainly less prevalent and common here. I mean, gotcha. as opposed to being in California where I was living before I got this job and moved here and, you know, having a bunch of friends who made wine, much more a part wow. of the culture. Um, yeah. Much more sort of direct access to um, locally grown wine and so on. I mean, there is actually a growing wine culture in Sweden, which I am appreciating hmm. and enjoying. There's a, grape called Solaris, which is um, grown here and does really well here and has a really nice flavor profile. It's a little bit like a New Zealand uh, Sauvignon Blanc. But um, I have found, so Sweden has um, a state-run alcohol monopoly. That's the only place to buy wow. to drink at home. And their purpose is to limit the harmful effects of alcohol, which is an important purpose that I recognize. But you know, then they're like trying not to sell <laughs> alcohol, basically. So it's kind of like getting your wine from a government bureaucracy, you know, they're like efficient and um, effective, but not inspiring. <laughs> so long story short, I, I have actually, funny enough, during the pandemic, one adaptation I've made or one thing I've discovered is some um, great small wine shops in Denmark that uh, ship over oh. here. I have been ordering some more interesting uh, and smaller sourced wines recently. So now I think we can transition a little bit into some, um, some, work about about air travel kev do you want to do you want to talk about that yeah so basically can you just like um give an overview of what you've done related to flying and climate change sure so if i go chronologically it actually starts with a personal story so in, in 2012 i had a beer with my friend charlie back to alcohol <laughs> so <laughs> good thing i'm keeping in mind this is a podcast for high school students yes all these important life decisions <laughs> Uh, I had an important conversation with my friend Charlie, let's focus on that, um, at a conference in Vienna. And I had flown to this conference from Sweden and he had taken the train from the UK. And I, I, it was just a real wake up moment for me because this was basically every conference I go to that's about climate change is about how devastating and terrible it is and how serious the impacts are. But I was really aware that I was in this big fancy conference center with hundreds of people, most of whom, like me, had flown there. And all of us experts should be the first to know that this is one, the most damaging thing you could do for the climate. Hour for hour flying is, is the worst thing uh, for the climate. So I just felt like I was, you know, at a doctor, a convention, like, I felt like I was at a convention of doctors who were talking about how important it is to quit smoking and we're all puffing on cigarettes. And this kind of cognitive dissonance was getting really, um, stressful and like hard for me to reconcile. So this conversation with Charlie was actually really helpful and important in 
helping me see a way to um, try to start facing that and sort of acknowledging the uncomfortable feelings I felt in, in knowing that my behavior wasn't in line with both what the science said and with my own values and finding a, a, a path that would work for me because, um, you know, I took this job in 2010 um, I interviewed for 66 professor jobs all around the world. I got this one and I've been here now for a decade. I'm a Swedish citizen and I have my, my life here and I'm very happy here, but my family is still in California and that's quite far away. So I couldn't imagine at that time giving up flying because I was imagining that would mean giving up seeing my family and I didn't want to do that. So this conversation with Charlie was really helpful. What he did and what I've since done as well is stop flying within Europe. So having this kind of clear um, self-selected boundary or limit was actually really helpful in saying, okay, I can do that. I can make that work. And that means I have to reconsider my time. You know, if I'm invited to give a talk for an hour in Spain and they would offer to fly me there and back in, in a day or something, I'm not going to do that. So can I really justify that trip? Can I make it worth my time if I'm going to take, you know, a day and a half on the train to get there and back? And what can I do along the way to um, see friends, stop and see collaborators, collect data for projects, make this trip and the journey really part of, you know, part of the, the whole experience and also really worth the, the, the time and the carbon that it still takes to travel by train, even though that's much less than flying. So that was my choice. And since then I've been, you know, decreasing my flying more and more down to 90 plus percent from when I was a frequent flyer back in 2010. And um, I actually took 15 round trip flights, um, which is very unusual globally. That was definitely part of this. Um, a new study from Stefan Gosling just showed it's only 1% of the global population who causes about half of the pollution, climate pollution from flying. So I was definitely wow. in that group back then. But in my circle, this felt normal. This felt like something a lot of people were doing. It was quite common to fly a lot to travel to conferences and, and it was kind of seen as part of the scientific culture. And I mean, I, at, th at that time, not thinking about the climate impact, I also saw that I thought that could be appealing, you know, oh, you get to go to these interesting places and meet interesting people. Um, but that's, you know, now I have realized that I can still do good work, be a successful scientist, have interesting collaborations and meet people and have adventures in terms of personal travel uh, without flying. So that's actually been a big revelation. But then to, to come to the research part of it. So in 2017, Seth Wines and I published a study looking at the, the personal choices that individuals can make that actually make the biggest difference that are the most effective for um, reducing our personal carbon footprints in high emitting countries. And that study actually was inspired by high school students. So Seth used to be a high school teacher. He was a, a science teacher in Canada. And his students there would ask him what they could do, basically, what are the most effective things. And he wanted a really, you know, solid science-based answer for them and had trouble finding you know, an, a source that had really done the math and put everything together. So part of his master's thesis, what he really wanted to look at was um, actually education, which you started out talking about how much, how, how is climate taught in high schools and is that in line with the science? So in order to do that, he went through the work of saying, okay, what does the science really say? So what we came to after crunching all the numbers from these 39 different sources 
was there are three things that work to really quickly and effectively reduce today's climate pollution. And that's what we have to focus on to get where we need to be by 2030, basically to, to be able to meet the Paris Agreement uh, in line with what science tells us is necessary, cutting emissions about in half uh, by 2030. So flying, cutting flying, for people who fly, reducing or eliminating flying is, is probably the most high impact climate action because it's, flying is so disproportionately climate polluting. Um, for the average person, I mean, more than half of Americans didn't fly even in 2018. So not talking about the pandemic, but um, you know, before air travel was affected by that. So on average, most people don't fly even in the US and, and certainly globally, most people have never been on a plane. But for those people who do fly, they, they cause a lot of climate pollution. So um, that's been part of our work. And I think um, another part of that has been, uh, I now lead a project called the takeoff of staying on the ground. And that's studying the social movement and discussions in media and, and some of the more cultural aspects of how these changes actually happen, where um, as of a few, several years ago now, actually, there's this growing social movement in Sweden to stay on the ground and avoid flying, flying for the climate. And there have been celebrities and journalists who've made declarations that they won't fly again. There's a woman named Maya Rosen who runs a campaign called Flight Free every year and gets people to sign on. Um, that's been really effective uh, and really influential, I think, in influencing both the policy and the media debate. And so that's something that we're studying here. So how would you say this no flying movement in Sweden compares to what you've seen in the US with similar movements? Sure, I think there is also a movement in the US, both a lot of academics um, who are really leading the charge and trying to push on, for example, um, scientific societies to hold conferences that are more accessible virtually, that don't require physical travel to participate. Um, and pledging themselves not to fly, getting institutions like universities and businesses to reevaluate their travel policies and make sure that they're not um, incentivizing the most climate destruction when they're um, writing the rules for how people are allowed to travel or expected tra to travel for work, for example. Um, so there are a lot of folks who are doing a lot of work um, in, in the US. Uh, the whole flying less um, group that um, Park Wiley runs is, is one that comes to mind. But I, I think what I see as the biggest difference, it, it certainly seems, I think Sweden is further along uh, on the path, which I hope that the US is actually going to be on as well, where it's a bigger and more mainstream part of culture here. It's just gone a bit further. So um, there's a larger proportion of the population here who's, uh, taken this on and who's um, chosen not to fly or to reduce their flying because of climate. There have been a number of studies now um, looking at that as an early case in, in Sweden and, and drawing lessons, which I think is really important because it's a case where behavior has actually changed. So that is really valuable to see, okay, well, what actually worked in practice? I mean, Seth Wines uh, led another study that I was a part of in 2018, where we looked at okay, we know that you know, flight, car, and meat-free, these are the biggest personal actions. Um, home energy use, we also included there. What previous studies, so if we know people need to, who are over-consuming our share of the, the carbon budget and who need to reduce our um, energy use and carbon footprint, those of us who emit too much, that's the most effective ways to cut down. Um, how, how, have, how has that worked in the past? What have people done to actually successfully 
catalyze those behaviors. And actually from that study where we looked at thousands of previous studies to see what had been done, we didn't find a single one that had tried to reduce flying. So for a long time, I mean, that, that was maybe 2016 to, I guess it was 2017 that we were collecting the data and we published it the next year. So by that point, no one had even tried to reduce flying. Whereas there were lots of studies about reducing home energy use. But the thing is, it's much more effective per person to reduce flying than to reduce home energy use, actually. Um, so now I think that is changing and we are seeing um, these campaigns that are working and, and um, people who have changed their behavior. So I think to me, that's the big difference that there's this backlash in the US that um, I don't see here in Sweden, where if people talk about reducing flying as a high impact climate action, the people in Sweden who say, no, that's not a good idea, are kind of dismissing the problem of climate change in general or saying, oh, technical solutions are the, the only answer and we, we don't really need to change anything else and everything will happen on its own. Whereas in the US, unfortunately, there's a group of um, people who are experts or work in the climate field and certainly are well aware of the severity and urgency of the climate crisis, but still are um, giving a message that reducing flying is not important for frequent flyers. And I think that's unfortunate and unhelpful. Thank you for listening to the first part of our talk with Kim Nicholas. The second part of our talk will be releasing in the future in which we discussed carbon capture, how a climate change aware high school education curriculum could be built and much more. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Carbon Gap.